My extra special guest this week is the Patrick Collister. He was the creative director of Ogilvy and Mather UK before starting up his own training company, Creative Matters, in 2004. In 2013, he landed the best job in advertising when he became the creative director at The Zoo, which is Google's client-facing creative think tank. He is also the author of How to Use Innovation and Creativity in the Workplace. He is now the non-executive creative director at AdLib, the only UK-based Google creative marketing partner. Patrick is also a curator at the Caples Awards. And if you are interested in things like brand building, creativity, and what makes agencies like Ogilvy and Mather special, then you are going to absolutely love this conversation. So grab a cup of coffee, take some notes, and without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with the Patrick Collister. Patrick Collister is currently a non-executive creative director at the tech startup AdLib. He was previously the creative director of Google Zoo, and he's been the ECD and vice chairman of Ogilvy and Mather. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Patrick Collister, welcome to Agency Deal Masters. This is such a treat. Thank you very much for having me. We've already had a damn good chat, and I'm looking forward to a bit more. We really have. And the reason why we've selected you is because your history and background is absolutely fascinating. You've done so much in your career. You're a legend in the world of brand and communications and advertising that really moves people. Um, in fact, when I told people that I'll be interviewing Patrick Collister this week on the show, they were, they were shocked. And they, there were a number of questions that came in from other people. So I've got a lot of questions to ask you today. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show. You've been at Ogilvy and Mather, as we said, Google, and now AdLib, a really fascinating company, which we'll speak about a little bit later on. But you got your start in 1979 as a copywriter for BMP, which later became DDB. It was probably the most influential agency in the world at the time. What first attracted you to the world of advertising and media? Well, to be honest, uh, I started before 1979. I, I think I started in 1977 as a trainee copywriter at Ogilvy and Mather. Uh, and, um, uh, and the way I got started is I'd been traveling. So I'd spent two years traveling and um, my dad got really <laughs> worried about this. I mean, so he used to send me letters to uh, post offices around the world, post restaurant. We, we could go and pick up a letter. And I'd, I'd get these letters from him. I remember going to the post office in Lusaka and opening up this letter, and it was full of job ads he'd taken out of the newspapers. Uh, anyway, eventually, for I, I got back to the UK, uh, and um, I think my dad wrote to a couple of ad agencies on my behalf, <laughs> is what happened. Uh uh, because he was really petrified I wasn't going to get a job. and, uh, <laughs> and But anyway, I got this interview to go. Uh, it was actually called Ogilvy Benson and Mather at the time. Uh, so I went for an interview and then they asked me to do a copy test, which was basically O-level English. Mm. Describe a delicious dish and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and that's how I got started. And I've got to tell you, I feel sometimes really humbled because getting into advertising for creative people subsequently has become incredibly difficult and, and really hard. Mm. 
And I waltzed into it without knowing what the hell it was, with no preparation, and basically really didn't deserve it. But like so many other people, I got there by accident. And the creative department at Ogilvy, Benson and Mather, when I started, was filled with accidental people. You know, Salman Rushdie had the office uh, just down the corridor from me. Um, and, of course, he went on to become uh, the author of Midnight's Children, which was the Booker Prize winner of all Booker Prize winners. But then opposite him, there was a guy who'd been a policeman in Zambia. Uh, then there was a, a, a gypsy who uh, absolutely, he played the violin just brilliantly, but was completely bonkers. Uh, th there was this extraordinary mixture of people. Today, I feel that creative departments are people by middle, middle class people who are identical in dress and in politics. And mm. I've got to tell you, when I started, the old Etonians in the creative department through to, as I say, my lovely gypsy friend. Mm. Really interesting. So you say that really it was a, it was a very different time then because there was a lot more diversity in, in the ad agency industry. Um, there were lots of different sorts of people coming into the industry from different backgrounds. Describe what Ogilvy and Mather was like and describe what the world was like at the time. Give us a, a flavour of the context that you were operating in at that time. Well, it was Ogilvy, Benson and Mather. And in those days, agencies made pretty decent money, I have to say, because they charged commission. So... Back then, so 1977 was very, very different indeed. Uh, the UK was coming out of a horrible recession, mm. which sounds familiar, of course. <laughs> but ad agencies operated completely differently. The way they made their money is that they were paid commission by the media owners. So if you were a client, if you were Nathan in Enterprises, mm. you would have a media budget of a million pounds. You didn't pay your ad agency a penny. But the Sunday Times and the TV stations did. Hmm. They took your money and they paid the agency this kind of thank you money for placing your advertising with us. Interesting. And so the commission rates were 17.65%, which was pretty good money. So on a on a media spend of a million pounds, then agencies were making 175 grand. Hmm. But also it was a system that rewarded good advertising. Because if it was a really good ad and it worked and people liked it, you kept running it, uh, which meant that you didn't have to beaver away to make another one. So there was more there was more money, which gave creative people infinitely more time. Uh, and then, of course, there was the explosion of TV as a medium with uh, Channel 4 turning up. And suddenly it became obvious that actually brand building through television advertising worked. And creative people had the magic dust. We had the juju. And so it was absolutely fantastic. There I was in the 1980s driving a Porsche. It was <laughs> magnificent. <laughs> so my dear dad, who thought that I was going to be the ruination of them all and would, you know, uh, end up under the arches of Charing Cross Bridge, you know, was gobsmacked as I came home in my little two-seater. <laughs> and uh, right. It was magnificent. But, of course, the party didn't last forever. And it was another recession uh, in 1990, that really did change advertising forever. Um, and coming out of that recession, 1991, suddenly commission ceased to exist. Now agencies were uh, competing furiously on much 
tighter margins and clients were now uh, beginning to have to pay agencies themselves. So uh, at the same time, of course, what we had with the expansion of Saatchi and Saatchi and of WPP, uh, the big holding companies. And so because they were often bigger than the clients they were serving, the client companies now had no compunctions at all about sending in procurement. And so it became a very, very different world indeed. And even now, what you see is that uh, back in the 90s, agencies were still pitching, but they were pitching for long-term relationships with clients. But now agencies are having to pitch for small projects the whole time. And it's so wasteful of time and energy, let alone talent. We look back quite fondly on the 70s, 80s and 90s as sort of the golden era of advertising and brand building in many ways. Um, any book that you read from that time really sort of highlights the amazing creativity that came out of, of, of the world at that time. It seems like a very different world that we're in today. But of course, we have the challenge of a splintering of media. There are lots of different channels. Attention is divided in many different places. It's not just TV now. It's not just print. It, it, it's social media. It's, it's everywhere. What does good advertising look like today in a busy, attention-divided world? Okay, well, the first thing is that um, a lot of people do say that creativity has been killed off by technology and the modern world. And I disagree with that completely, because what they're talking about is a very specific kind of creativity, which is, if you like, storytelling in a 30-second format. And for me, creativity is nothing more and nothing less than solving problems. And if I'm a brand manager, my problem is that I need to sell my product or I go out of business. The factory closes and we lose jobs. So creative people are now finding new ways to make brands relevant to people. And technology is delivering absolutely fabulous ways that you can do that. I guess for me, the big problem has been the last seven or eight years uh, ad tech has all been about media delivery. So we've seen the rise and rise of programmatic, mm. which is just like fintech. I mean, it just makes my brain bleed to think about how it happens. Mm. You know, the, the automatic bidding and placement of an ad happens in a nanosecond now, but mm. it does. Finally, I think that uh, ad tech is beginning to look at uh, the creative work itself. And so so for me, creativity manifests itself in, in apps, manifests itself through new products and services that make lives uh, better for people in, in, in ways. So creativity is very much alive and well. It's just morphed out of the 30-second TV commercial into, as I say, uh, uh, apps, into services, into products that help us in our daily lives. We're going to have a long winding conversation about brand building and how to build a brand. But one of the things, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was actually something that we discussed with Rory Sutherland on the show. And I, I know that you know Rory really well. I think you overlapped at, with your time at, at Ogilvy. But one of the things that we discussed was because of the introduction of technology and the importance to deliver results quite quickly on a quarterly basis, creative people or agency agency folk need to make sure that whatever they present to their client, there is a demonstrable 
ROI on the back of it. You can't present something that in 18 months time, you start to see some results from because we need to see results in the next quarter. What does that kind of short-term thinking do to the way that we approach building brands and creating significance in a world that is so focused on the bottom line and generating ROI now? I think ROI is the single most damaging concept to advertising in the last 10 years. What it used to mean was the reconciliation of a campaign. So you would run a campaign and then at the end of it, you'd take a look and see what the results were. And had you made money or had you lost money, it didn't matter. But then you did your computation. Now, ROI is actually a software. Mm. So what happens inside a media agency is that somebody pushes a button on a computer and based on what you as a brand did last year and the year before and based also on what your competitors are doing it will compute what your expected ROI is so the media agency will say uh okay Nathan this is great uh based on your million pound spend for example if you tighten up all of the points of intersection on the customer journey where we can talk to uh, uh, our key uh, customers, we can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get an ROI of 7 or 8%. Hmm. So now as a brand manager, you're able to stand in front of your board and you're able to give them a number. And in these very, very left brain times, people much prefer a number hmm. to an idea. So ROI, as I say, is this insane concept because it's it's based on predictive software. It's not, you know, a return on investment. It's the potential return on investment. And then the next thing, of course, as I say, it's based on what you did last year and the year before that. And it was Einstein who once said that repetition is a form of madness. Hmm. And of course, as a creative person, I know that what we need to be doing is to is is new and interesting. That's what attracts people. You know, what is new and what's interesting when they say when they see the same old same old they just forget it they blank it you know and at a time when the economist says we're subjected to 3000 selling messages a day in order to get through that thick fog then you have to do new you have to do interesting honestly if i was to ask you come on nathan tell me two selling messages in the last 24 hours that you can remember uh, <laughs> um, my own I can't think of any exactly do you see what I mean <laughs> and yet so ROI is this concept that is urging you to come up with yet more bland fog mm. and so so I get really upset by that where I talk about return on idea as a concept so an idea is something that you can't measure up front except through experience and gut instinct. And that's why the very best marketing directors are people who are familiar with the world of ideas, who are familiar with decision making too. You know, to be a successful marketer, you cannot be afraid. Well, this brings us back to the conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago, because you had a really interesting idea for a, a toy bus. And this is <laughs> this goes back to your, your point about uh, return on, on an idea. Tell us the idea that you had for the toy bus and tell us the kind of response that you got from <laughs> the brand managers at the time. Well, this was a company that uh, specializes in direct response, off the page selling. 
and they had a little model bus made of metal, heavy metal, little London bus. Um, and because the route master was being phased out, Boris had inv invited all of these new whizzy double-deckers into London. Uh, they thought they had an opportunity to sell these and they were going to sell them off the page in colour supplements for just, I think, £2 each, which was amazing. And they asked me if I would write an ad for it that would go in the colour supplements and in various magazines. And I went in to see the marketing director. And I said, I tell you what, you know, and I, I think I'm right. I, I may have got this wrong, but the 38 bus route had just been discontinued in London and that ran from North London all the way to Battersea. And I said, wouldn't it be brilliant if we got the 38 bus to run again? So I said, what, what I think we can do is take your little bus and we'll get a whole group of people through Facebook to come and join us. And what we'll do is we'll push this bus literally all the way from North <laughs> London to Battersea <laughs> through the roads of London. You know, right. using a team of people and their fingers on, on the bus, and it'll be absolutely brilliant, and it will get on the news, and it'll be magnificent. And he said, yes, but I just wanted an ad with a headline and a coupon. <laughs> he thought yeah, I was yeah. completely crackers. <laughs> and um, so anyway, they went ahead, they ran their ad, and uh, I think they sold a lot of buses. So I, this is the thing, you see. Mm. You know, in a meeting like that... Um, Somebody from a media agency can go in and say, yeah, absolutely right. If you use these uh, particular titles, you know, say the Saturday Telegraph magazine, the blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah, um, we reckon that you'll get an ROI of around 6%. And if you're the uh, client, you go, wow, 6%, that sounds great. I go in with an idea for running a bus all the way down London. He says, what kind of ROI do you think we're going to get? I said, I have no idea, mate. Mm. You know, but I am pretty bloody sure that people think it's hilarious and we could get on news at 10. Mm. So, honestly, the sky's the limit. Potentially 10, 15%. Why not? Mm. Now, who are you going to go for? The nutcase who's going, here's the vision. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Or are you going to go for the guy who says rationally 6% ROI? Really interesting. So, goes back to your point, it takes a brave brand manager to really listen to the to the to the crazy person that's talking about uh you know the crazy idea to really sort of step out of the shadows and and really take a risk it's not only a brave brand manager it takes a brand manager who really understands his or her brand and what it stands for and what it means to people and, and what its its core strengths are so it honestly being a, a really good marketer uh, you do have to be a polymath. And it's no surprise to me, by the way, that the really, really top marketers end up in general management uh, because they're not afraid of making decisions. Because buying any advertising campaign, you're making decisions all along the line. And, and actually, you're making the sort of decisions in which it is much easier not to do anything new and interesting. And I suppose the classic example is that the new CEO of Unilever, Alan Jope, was a marketer. Mm. So he really understands the power of branding. Uh, in his context, of course, what he's trying to do is to re-engineer all of Unilever's brands around brands with purpose. Mm. You know, and for him, it isn't about corporate social responsibility. It is actually about making a better product for a better world. 
and people will accept that and understand it and that will inform their choices. Now, he's a really, really smart guy. Don't miss out on our weekly newsletter called The Masters. It's exclusive content from the best agency leaders in the world on how to build and grow successful agency businesses. Join thousands of other founders, brand leaders and entrepreneurs, and you'll find content that isn't published anywhere else, even in the main feed. When you subscribe, you'll also get a free toolbox of ideas and strategies that we have carefully handpicked from the most successful marketing leaders around today. If you're even remotely interested in how to build a great agency business, this is something for you. So head over to agencydealmasters.com to sign up. Benchpress 2021 is now open. It is the largest survey of independent agency owners in the UK, and it's your chance to benchmark yourself against your peers. You'll receive a copy of the full benchmark results as a thank you for taking part. By taking part, you'll be able to compare yourself against your peers in several key areas, including hourly rates and profitability and sales performance. You'll also discover what the top performers do differently, insights that will have the power to transform your agency. The link to complete the survey is in the description. So last question before we come on to the topic of brand more specifically. Um, you became vice chairman of Ogilvy roughly around 1993. Am I getting my dates right? Uh, I became the, I went back to Ogilvy, Benson and Mather, except they'd lost Benson now. It was Ogilvy and Mather. Poor old Benson. What happened to him, I wonder? <laughs> and now, by the way, they've bumped off Mather as well. God. He's somewhere in a ditch, so it's just Ogilvy. It's just Ogilvy. <laughs> but then I went back. Uh, I'd been a copywriter there uh, in the late 70s, and I went back as creative director in 1992. And then in 1999, 98, 7, somewhere around then, um, rather than give me a pay rise, which is what I really want, they just gave me a fancy title. And, mm, uh, interesting. So I was vice chairman. So I was Rory Sutherland before Rory, and uh, a, lo a lot less famous. So, so speaking about Rory Sutherland, how much did your time overlap with you, yourself and, and Rory, and what what sort of relationship did you have with him? Well, Rory became the creative director of Ogilvy One when I was at uh, Ogilvy and Mather. So uh, we saw ourselves very much as the parent company, if you see what I mean. And in those days, of course, uh, direct marketing was rather thought of as just folding shit. So, um, but Rory, uh, Rory was magnificent in many ways. Um, he was, uh, well, he was just fantastically clever, great fun. And the thing about him was that he was a visionary. Um, he understood the way tech was about to change our world. And, and actually, it may well have been through Rory that I set up the first digital creative department of any ad agency in London at the time, uh, which led to people like Alan Howell winning uh, Ogilvy's first ever digital award. Um, Alan came up with a, a fantastic interactive ad for Guinness. Uh, it was Alan who also came up with the first ever brand screensaver which was for Guinness also and mm. um, but Rory as I say Rory understood very early on how technology was going to transform our industry but not that he could have foreseen as how dramatically it was going to turn our industry inside out 
Really interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit about branding more specifically. Havas recently um, cited a report which said if 82% of brands went away tomorrow, nobody would notice. So that suggests that not many people are really in the business of building brands today. Discuss. For me, the biggest single business idea of the last century is the brand. Um, and because what we mean by that is... Uh, something that means something to people. What it is, it's anthropomorphic. What we do is we apply human characteristics to inanimate objects. Why should I feel differently about BMW than I do to Jaguar? And so what happened, uh, I suppose, early on, Ogilvy, David Ogilvy himself in the 1950s, certainly Ogilvy and Mather when I was working there under Charlotte Beers, saw that the brand was this incredibly powerful platform from which you could create real relationships with consumers that would then translate into sales. They would buy products that meant something to them. Now, for me, what's been appalling about this is to watch brand owners trashing this incredible property they own and I mean by that, doing despicable things. So Mercedes-Benz created the A-Class. They discovered that it fell over in road tests. And when a Swedish journalist did the Elk test and the A-Class Mercedes uh, was found by him to be inadequate car in terms of safety, what did Mercedes do? Instead of going, yeah, fair cop, you know, the maker of the best cars in the world put private detectives onto this journalist in order to trash his reputation and to spoil his life. You know, when Firestone knew that their tyres exploded at, uh, at high speed, they tried to hush it up. And we go all the way through to Volkswagen, who seven or eight years ago lied and cheated uh, with the diesel scandal. I mean, the thing about that diesel scandal isn't just that they doctored the software so that it, it appeared to minimise the amount of uh, um, particulates that diesel engines spew out. It allowed them to actually increase, you know, the amount of particulates their car uh, cars were spraying out across the world and uh, and when they were found out for that that's trashing the brand everything that Volkswagen had stood for mm. now for me the extraordinary part about that is that three years later Volkswagen had recovered from this five years later Volkswagen were back in record profit in other words either the power of the brand had managed to to uh, support them through this crisis that people thought, okay, well, Volkswagen will go back to being what they were all about. Uh, or, and here's the interesting conundrum, and I still haven't got the answer to this, that the most powerful brand communication of all is the product itself. Mm. So you look at a VW Passat, it's a really nice looking car. You look at the price, you think, wow, you know, that's as good as Mercedes, but it's cheaper. You look at the spec that it offers and you think, wow, that's great. You look at the service costs and you think those are pretty good. And so you come to a balanced decision. So the point is that the brands that have absolutely firmly adhered to brand building procedures are really powerful today. I mean, it's no accident that Nike is a case history at every single conference you go to, mm. boringly so. But it's <laughs> but it's because Phil Knight at the very beginning, when he appointed Wyden and Kennedy, uh, 
went into partnership with uh, a group of people who understood exactly what the emotional relationship between product and uh, customer is. And that's essentially what makes the brand. What does it stand for? What does it mean to you? And then as a marketer, how do you take that meaning and leverage it? So you talk about automotive brands, uh, BMW, Mercedes, Volkswagen, etc. Probably the the strongest example of this today is, is Tesla. I mean, they are probably the most valuable car brand in the world today, more valuable than uh, Ford, GM. No, 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 they're not. Are they not? They're not. No, they're the most valuable car company in the world. That's not the same thing. Interesting. You know, so, for example, uh, uh, the most valuable company in the world today is Apple. Now, Apple has become the most valuable company in the world, probably because of its brand values. And those were single-handedly created and managed by Steve Jobs. You know, to be a really successful brand manager, you do have to be a fascist. You have to be completely ruthless, which is what he was. You know, I, I mean... You know, you don't build a brand through committees. You just simply don't. Look at Virgin. Richard Branson stamped his personality, his Robin Hood theory, onto challenging British Airways, onto challenging the big banks. That's how you do it. But presumably it's much easier to do that if you are the owner-manager of the company, if you are the face of the brand, i.e. Steve Jobs, i.e. Elon Musk for Tesla, i.e. Richard Branson, uh, Jeff Bezos go down the list. It's far harder, presumably, to do that in a Ford, a GM, a Chrysler. A, I don't oh, know. that's not true. I think if you go back again, we're having to go back in time. But um, let's take a look at um, GM. Lee Iacocca, mm. you know, was the charismatic head of uh, of GM, and um, he was absolutely ruthless. And by the way, he turned himself into the brand spokesperson and amazingly successfully. I'm just hoping it was GM. I'm not very good on my American car brands. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably, so so once we've done that then, once we've built this brand or this, this uh, uh, meaning vessel that has um, meaning, communicates meaning in the world, what does the marketing machine look like to put it out in the world and sort of accelerate that? What should the component parts of that marketing machine look like? Well, this is this is changing. I mean, in the good old days of brand building, when I was growing up in ad agencies like BMP, my boss, John Webster, was absolutely brilliant at creating brands. So, for example, uh, he's pretty single-handedly responsible for making Walkers the uh, most valuable um, CPMG brand in the UK. Walker's Crisp, and he did that through Gary Lineker. And he turned Gary, who had just retired from football and was reckoned to be the nicest man in football, he turned him into a nasty person, you know, <laughs> because Walker's Crisps were um, temptation beyond endurance. So Gary always used to steal the kids' crisps at the end of the ads. You know, now we're looking 30 years later, and Gary Lineker is still the spokesperson for Walker's Crisps, even though most people don't know that he used to be a great centre forward uh, mm. and 
that he came from Leicester and all the rest of it. Leicester, by the way, where Walker's Crisps originated too. So it's about using personalities, characters, creating a warmth around the brand that people respond to so that they choose Walker's rather than Golden Wonder when they see them on the shelf. Oh, yeah, Walker's, that's that Gary brand, isn't it? Mm. Today, of course, what we see, there's a guy called Orlando Wood who's just been uh, writing about this. He's written a book called Lemon in which he says that most modern advertising is very left-brained. And he means by left brain that it's uh, punctuated, it's loud and noisy, it's got lots of uh, supers, titles over the action, lots of different people in it. Uh, So there's no humanity, there's no warmth, whereas right brain advertising is is characterised by personalities uh, and with little stories and with warmth. So so if you're going to launch a brand today, then if you're going to use advertising, then I would say that's probably what you want to do. But of course, what's happened with COVID is that people have gone online. you know, And as people go online, the way we consume media has totally changed. And so now what I'm looking for is for uh, companies out there to be able to do things for me that are actually just nice. And again, it's about these human values. Mm. And what it means is... is is being, I was talking to a marketer, this is a couple of years ago, who told me that indirect marketing, what he was trying to do was to establish conversations with his core customers. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, how often do you talk to your customers? And he said, well, we do a mailing twice a year. What? That's not a conversation. I mean, if I spoke to my wife twice a year, life would be a hell of a lot easier. But I couldn't, sure. you know. And it's so, not a relationship. No, but now through digital media, through social media and the rest of it, brands can establish relationships, but it does mean that they have to understand what their values are and how they communicate those values. And, of course, the Mm -hmm. big problem these days is everyone seems to think that the word values and having values means that you've got to be a tree hugger or you've got to be into LGBTQ uh, issues of Mm -hmm. some sort. No, you don't. I mean, I've just seen a wonderful campaign from Indonesia for Oreos, the chocolate biscuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, you know, Oreo's purpose is just playfulness. Yeah, for me, that seems a really uh, extremely valid brand purpose to have, especially in these dismal times of, of COVID. Just to have a laugh with a chocolate biscuit doesn't seem to me to be unworthy. That's really interesting. So you don't necessarily have to create this big overarching purpose in the world to save you know to solve hunger or to create the cure for cancer or or whatever vaccine it could just be as simple as playfulness what role do things like creating an enemy have in shaping a brand not only an, an enemy maybe not a direct competitor but maybe um a, an enemy that really can't be defeated something that is more uh metaphysical Um, How important is the identification and the creation of an enemy that you can kind of uh, take up arms against? And how important is creating a a big goal that that galvanizes your community and galvanizes your audience? Uh, What role does that play in building a brand? Well, I have to say, identifying your enemy is, I think, the first rule of marketing. Not that you need to uh, um, talk about it in your ads, 
that said, Burger King have taken on McDonald's consistently over the last five years. Uh, Fernando Machado is a rock star marketing director. And at Burger King around the world, what they've done is tweak the tail of the giant. And that's it, because it is David and Goliath that uh, Burger King is a much smaller company than McDonald's, which is huge. And they do. They take the piss out of McDonald's mercilessly, (laughs) knowing that McDonald's won't uh, retort, won't strike back because it would demean them to do so. So for me, also, if you're going to translate that into advertising, yes, do. Many is the time I've tried to get clients to identify the enemy and go for them by the throat because that's something that people understand, mm. you know, hostility and taking each other down and whatever. David and Goliath story. It's a, it's a beautiful story. <laughs> it is a beautiful story. But in advertising, I've suddenly had this echo from the past. In the 1970s, the great John Webster created a brilliantly, brilliantly famous campaign to sell milk at the time. Uh, and the enemy there was um, you as a, a consumer. Your milk was going to be stolen by the Humphreys. Watch out, watch out, there's a Humphrey about. And it's all, he even got Muhammad Ali in one of his TV commercials you know, to say uh, that the Humphreys ain't going to steal my milk. And, uh, <laughs> really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the art of agency businesses. What makes a great agency business? What makes a great agency is when it knows what it's doing and why it's doing it. I know that sounds facile, but BMP was a completely new kind of ad agency. Stanley Pollitt invented planning, but he didn't invent planning just to be uh, irritating (laughs) to creative people, which it became in many ways, nor did he uh, invent planning in order to really reassure timid clients that their advertising was going to work. Uh, He invented planning so that uh, he and his colleagues in the early days of BNP could produce advertising that was pleasant rather than hateful. And so BNP invented planning in order to create advertising that people liked. Because there was a simple theory behind this that popular advertising would be successful advertising, and that proved to be the case. So BMP uh, was a startup in 1968. By the time I joined, 10 years later, uh, it was definitely a top 10 agency. I think it got to about number five. You know, when it floated and became a public company, it was oversubscribed because it really stood for something. Mm. And out of that comes a, a culture. Do you know, I used to go to... Um, industry parties and people say where do you work and of course what's in a brand with enormous pride and arrogance by the way i'd say i'm at bmp people you know (laughs) there were three agencies there were only three agencies you wanted to work at it was bmp cdp or sarches then so what did bmp stand for at that time why did people go ooh because the creative work was stunning Originally, uh, uh, John Webster had created uh, fabulous uh, campaigns like uh, uh, Smash Martians with uh, the amazing copywriter Chris Wilkins. But Dave Trott was there doing wonderful campaigns for Colt 45 uh, and so forth. Uh, It was where the most talented people in advertising worked um, before they went off and uh, and worked elsewhere. 
just and all of the work was just consistently the best in town the most engaging the most interesting the most awarded but of course the big thing then is uh it won awards uh, after it had run i mean this was before awards got out of hand and then people started making ads specifically for award shows mm-hmm. bmp made work that people loved and then it won awards really interesting Patrick I could speak to you about this all day especially because I'm in the process of building my own brand at the moment and I'm picking your brain but also because it's just a fascinating topic but we're fast running out of time let's let's get into everyone's favorite questions these are the questions that I'm asking all of my guests so I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well um a little bit more you know who is the person behind the brand sort of questions Mm. uh First one, <laughs> tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I've failed a lot um, and I continue to fail, by the way. I mean, I was interviewed not long ago and uh, the journalist went, "Oh, Patrick, you know, you're so clever. And I, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> but you're so clever, you've managed to stay ahead of the curve. You move out of advertising to direct marketing just as direct marketing was happening. And then you moved out of that into tech just as tech was happening. How did you do it? And I said, well, uh, simple, I got fired. And um, <laughs> when you get sacked, what you do is you stop and you take a look at what's happening around you sure. and then reset yourself. So I don't feel embarrassed about admitting that I've been fired uh, frequently. Because every time I got sacked, it was their problem, not mine. And um, it gave me the opportunity to reset. And so in some ways, I failed uh, in each of those roles, but then was able to start again. And I'm currently failing enormously. I've uh, in the last since lockdown began, I've written three books. I've written a novel, wow, a dystopian novel all about advertising. I've written a kid's book. Uh, and I've written a business book and I'm trying to get these published. And uh, I failed so far on all three accounts. But I am learning this incredible uh, a new skill. I mean, I used to think that um, writers were people who sat down and wrote books and then publishers read them and went, yeah, we'll have that. No, no, it really is a lot more difficult than that. And wow. in fact, your editor is a creative director. So, I mean, my children's book, the... The editor who read it said, well, first of all, it's too posh. You know, um, the language is stuck in sort of 1960s prep school, so get real. Um, The kids' parents just don't feel right. You should make him the son of a single mum who's struggling. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. No, really. And um, But then also I've been educated in the story arc and then she said look you've got a great story here but the way you tell it is just fumbling and inadequate what you knew you need to do these things and a story arc is about setting up uh, the challenge and then your Mm. protagonist overcomes that challenge but then Mm. there's another problem as well and who's the antagonist because you need to make sure that there is an antagonist in all of this the antagonist doesn't necessarily need to be a person, uh, though it is in one of my books, the antagonist can be uh, uh, what's happening in politics at the time, or it can be a whole series. So, so anyway, in failing, uh, I'm learning so much. 
Really fascinating. So you've written three books since lockdowns in 10 months, you would say, give or take? Okay, well, to be honest, uh, I'd started the novel before then. Um, I, in fact, I actually started the novel probably 10 years ago, but I rewrote it in lockdown, mm. my fourth rewrite, because that's the thing I've learned as well, that you have to keep writing and rewriting and rewriting to edit down to make it uh, a better. It's like it's like a soup, if you like. The first draft of a novel is uh, the base of the soup, but then you need to bubble it down so it gets richer and richer. Sure. But the kids' novel, yeah, definitely that. And um, and then the business book. I've written a book called, uh, at the moment, the working title is Permission Denied. Hmm. And that is uh, Permission Denied because 20 years ago, Seth Godin wrote a book uh, about permission marketing. Permission marketing. In yeah. which he said that advertising would become, uh, if you like, personalised, anticipated and relevant. Sure. Instead of which, it's become spooky, annoying, and crass. Uh, <laughs> and it's permission denied that online, around the world, close to a billion ad blockers have been installed so far. That's right. Amazing. And that's because people hate advertising so much, especially online. You know, remarketing, pursuing you around the internet when yeah. you've just bought the bloody present. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it, it's... And so... How can we create advertising that people do want to engage with? And this goes back to the question you asked before. It is about building a brand, but building a brand in the modern sense, mm. where the brand's virtues, its characteristics are ones that we want to embrace. And when the brand involves us in conversations, they're about things that we care about and we know they care about those things too. Really fascinating. So, yeah, it's a it's a book that looks back at the history of advertising, but then looks forward to how we can actually build brands successfully through paid for communication. So that brings us on to my favorite question now about your books, your favorite <sighs> books. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction or nonfiction, whatever. All right. Well, let's start with nonfiction. There's a book called The Empty Raincoat by a business philosopher called Charles Handy. And certainly when I was mentoring uh, other creative leaders, uh, I got them all to read it. And in fact, I've taken quite a lot of my own philosophy from it. Um, he calls it The Empty Raincoat because uh, how do you make the most of people's potential? And in other words, how do you fill the raincoat for people? And so that's an absolutely brilliant book mm. written by a guy uh, about the human qualities that are required in order to be a successful business person. Mm. Um, another book I recommend to everybody is a book called Changing the World, The Only Fit Occupation for a Grown Man. And this was <laughs> written by Steve Harrison. And it's a it's a work of love, actually. It's a biography of the great Howard Luck Gossage, who was an ad man in San Francisco in the 1950s and who had a little agency called The Firehouse, mm. which could have been a monumental global brand if he'd wanted it to be, but he he never did. A Volkswagen in the late 1950s went to him in San Francisco uh, because he was an advertising genius. And they said, we'd like to give you our business. We want to launch this funny little car here in North America. And he went, oh, I don't know, really. Tell you what, there, there are some guys in New York, at a place called DDB, go and talk to them. But 
but Howard Luck Gossage, so Gossage, so many of the things that he thought and did presaged experiential advertising today. Um, and Steve has written this joyous book about him. Really interesting. Uh, my kid's novel is all about uh, a little boy aged 12 who is creative. In other words, he's very different to everybody else in his class. And it's the story of how Leonardo da Vinci uh, comes back as a spirit to um, to work with him on a particular project. I'm not going to give anything away, but I've been I started reading Walter Isaacson's biography uh, of him of Leonardo, uh, mm. and again, uh, Walter Isaacson also wrote the biography Steve of Steve Jobs, which is fantastic. Mm. And the bit and the book of Leonardo is he turns he makes art history uh, something I think that everyday people can really appreciate and understand and out of that I became fascinated with Isabella d'Este uh, and so I've re just read several books about her. Who is she? Isabella d'Este was well she's the subject of my kids book actually because Leonardo da Vinci was famous for not finishing things and back in uh, the 1480s he promised her that he would finish a portrait of her which he started and which he never did so in my book, Leonardo is destined to roam eternity until he fulfills this promise. Mm. So Isabella d'Este was a princess, um, but she was also, she was a Renaissance woman. Really, she was a scholar. She was uh, um, into the arts. She was a gardener. She was an architect. She was a collector. She was also an inspired ruler. In fact, so much so that actually it really pissed her husband off when he was he was exiled for a time and uh, she ruled in his stead magnificently well. Mm. And then, of course, you know, was taken up by the King of France and she negotiated a settlement with the, the Papal States. I mean, so she was formidable in so many ways, um, cultured, but but a force of nature. Really uh, I would love to write about her. So um, who else? Honestly, there are so many things. Favourite books. Uh, my dad wrote his autobiography. It's a book by Peter Collister called Then a Soldier. Uh, it's probably remaindered. Uh, but um, but in it, and you were talking about Stoics. I was. Nathan. Yeah. When my dad died... Um, he asked that a passage from his book was read at his funeral. And I'd read his book, but of course, now he'd died, I reread it again. And this particular passage was about uh, 1944 and him in Burma and in the war. And he'd just been shot. He'd been shot through the mouth. Uh, I mean, imagine having somebody line a gun up in order to kill you, which is what happened to him. He'd managed to survive, but he was in a hospital that then got uh, evacuated, uh, leaving the wounded there. And they were almost certainly all going to die. And um, and then this aeroplane flew overhead. It circled and it landed. And a big U.S. Army, a U.S. Air Force sergeant leaned out and said, say, you boys want to lift? And so uh, the wounded from this hospital who'd been left to die, uh, were evacuated by this American transport plane. And my father wrote about the fact that every day after that was a bonus. And he genuinely had lived every day 
as if it was his last. Mm. And it gave him his mission in life, which was to, to be an educator. Originally, he was going to be a diplomat, instead of which he went to Africa, he built schools, he filled the schools with teachers and with pupils in order to give them a, a European-style education so they could go to universities in Europe and America to come back and to manage their own countries. And so uh, out of that moment uh, came this guy who dedicated his life to making sure that the 20th century refixed itself. Beautiful. Um, and so my dad is one of my heroes. Um, Absolutely beautiful. Thank you for telling that story. Um, Other books, yeah. I, I, a couple of, uh, if anyone is interested in fiction, uh, for me, Zorba the Greek, the great not Nikos Kazantzakis, it's a book of just great joy and celebration in, in life. Um, there's a book, yeah. a little funny little obscure book called A Dragon's Life by a guy who was a copywriter in advertising called Walker Hamilton. And if ever you worked in advertising in the 70s and 80s, you'll recognise it. It's the story of an actor who goes to a casting session for a, a blogo product or whatever it might be. And he has to wear a dragon suit, you know, to, to be in the commercial. So they get him into the dragon suit and he goes through the lines and the director goes, nah, I don't think so. And so he walks off, but then he just starts running. He runs out of the film studios and it's the story of for three days dressed as a dragon, his adventures. And again, it's joyous. It has a very, very sad ending, but it's kind of rather marvellous. Mm. Murder Must Advertise, Dorothy L. Sayers, the Peter Whimsey book set in an ad agency, uh, written in the uh, 1930s, but it's, again, fascinating. Nick Johnston-Jones wrote a book called Toilet Elephant, <laughs> which is just hilarious. Uh, Nick Johnston-Jones is now a teacher. He used to be a planner who I worked with at Ogilvy. Um, and this book, Toilet Elephant, it's on Amazon. I think it's mm. um, uh, an Amazon book. Hilarious. Really, really, really funny. Amazing. Oh, honestly... And the best book of all, my Desert Island book. Yeah. It's so English, but the characters are so beautiful and beautifully drawn. And it's a mixture of, as I say, optimistic as well as nostalgic is Wind in the Willows. Uh, Wind in the Willows, classic text from school. Amazing selections there. Thank you very much for sharing them. Then a Soldier, Zorba the Greek, uh, A Dragon's Life, Murder, Must Advertise, T Toilet Elephant. Wind in the willows, go down the list. Uh, I'm going to be very busy over yeah. the next few months. And changing the world, fit occupation. I've added that, added all to my Amazon reading list. And my final question, Patrick, what did you know about building world-class brands today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? God, that's a tough one. I think what I wish I'd really known at the beginning uh, was archetyping. Uh, and archetyping is, I suppose, really drilling down into storytelling. Uh, the old Greek myths uh, are, are all stories that resonate around the world with all people. And, uh, and all of the Greek gods and goddesses uh, represent values and virtues. And in the hands of a really clever person like Sandy Dunlop, you can start to apply these to brands. What characteristics have your brands got? 
what archetypes could they be modelled on? And when you come up with those characteristics, then suddenly you've got really interesting things to start building on. Mm. Um, I think when I was younger, we, we, we built brands through instinct and intuition as much as anything. Mm. You know, John Webster was this genius at creating characters. So George the Bear for Hofmeister, um, Cresta Bear for Cresta the Drink, and he, he created these personalities. But it's rooting those personalities in myth, in archetypes, so that they have a universal resonance. I know it sounds crap, but it's true. I think uh, that was... Uh, providing, I suppose, if you like, an intellectual armature to the whole business of creativity. Mm. That is absolutely fascinating. Patrick, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We have been speaking with Patrick Collister. He is currently a non-executive director at AdLib. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 100 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, advertising, and branding. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Marian Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Don't miss out on our weekly newsletter called The Masters. It's exclusive content from the best agency leaders in the world on how to build and grow successful agency businesses. Join thousands of other founders, brand leaders and entrepreneurs and you'll find content that isn't published anywhere else, even in the main feed. When you subscribe, you'll also get a free toolbox of ideas and strategies that we have carefully handpicked from the most successful marketing leaders around today. If you're even remotely interested in how to build a great agency business, this is something for you. So head over to agencydealmasters.com to sign up. Benchpress 2021 is now open. It is the largest survey of independent agency owners in the UK, and it's your chance to benchmark yourself against your peers. You'll receive a copy of the full benchmark results as a thank you for taking part. By taking part, you'll be able to compare yourself against your peers in several key areas, including hourly rates and profitability and sales performance. You'll also discover what the top performers do differently insights that will have the power to transform your agency. The link to complete the survey is in the description.